0: The following story has mentions of sexual assault and suicide. If you need to sit this one out, I totally get it. My best friend Terry died three months ago. I did the things a best friend does. I spoke at the funeral, I comforted his family, and I helped his fiancée Hannah pack up his things. Terry had been a constant in my life since junior high, despite all the obstacles that usually erode at a 20-year friendship like, time and distance. We came from vastly different backgrounds from the start. I was from a small working class household while he grew up in a large family so wealthy that money wasn't ever really a consideration for them, just a given, like water or air. Yet, growing up, his parents were always kind and welcoming to me, and while I was never close to Terry's brother and two sisters, they were never stunk up or mean. When I stayed with them during the funeral in the following few days, they were just as I remembered, and I could tell they appreciated having another person there that loved Terry and could share the burden of losing him so suddenly. Still, he was my only real connection to my family and their lives, and when I flew back home the following week, I had no expectation I would ever have much contact with any of them again. That's why I was surprised when a few days later I got a call from Hannah. She told me Terry had bought me a gift before he died, a very unique kind of service that they had both used before and really loved. He had wanted it to be a surprise for the next time we were together, but now that wasn't possible, so she wanted to let me know. I was strangely touched by both the gift and her thinking to call me and tell me about it. It sounded like something Terry would do. Wiping my eyes, I asked her what kind of service it was. She gave a short laugh and said it would be better for it to be a surprise. The people should be contacting me in the next few days to set up an appointment and everything would be explained then. With that said, she said her goodbyes. She was gone. The following Friday, I was sitting in my living room across from a distinguished-looking man in a well-tailored suit, his vaguely European accent adding a pleasantly cultured lilt to his words as he told me about his company, Monica He said his name was Dimitri Ayler, and he had a very special gift for me. Andrew, if I offered you a chance to take a wonderful trip to anywhere in the world, a true adventure full of beauty and excitement, Wouldn't you want to go? I gave a slight smile. Uh, Well, sure. Yeah. Was that the gift? A trip to wherever I wanted? The man returned my smile briefly as he nodded. (laughs) Of course you would. But now, what if I told you that after you took that trip, you would have no memory of it at all? You would have no trace of it having happened in your life whatsoever. I frowned. What was this? Um, I don't know. I don't think I would, no. The man's expression turned to a contemplative frown. And why is that? Shrugging, I paused a moment as I tried to find the right words. I just... I don't know. What would the point be? I would just be losing time for my life and having nothing to show for it when I was done. Aylor raised a finger. Exactly. We are, in many ways, our memories. Things that happen that we don't know about or don't remember, well, they are a little power or value to us. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Nodding, he went on. Well, then, would you also agree that the opposite is true? That memories of things that did not occur can be very powerful and of great worth. I felt a growing unease at all of this. This man, while very polished and pleasant, was making little sense. I almost felt like I was being given a sales pitch for a self-help seminar or a fancy cult. Hoping I didn't sound rude, I asked him what exactly he was offering. Far from looking insulted, the man's face brightened as he leaned forward. I'm offering you, or rather your friend Terry is offering you, the gift of memory. We've developed a method of permanently implanting knowledge and memories inside a human brain. I know it sounds like science fiction, but I assure you it's not. Our research and technology is 30 years ahead of what is commonly known or available because we have the support of a small but very powerful clientele that can afford to pay substantial sums for such advancement. I shook my head. Still, how is that possible? It sounds like something out of the Matrix. He chuckled or total recall. Believe me, I've heard them all, but it is nothing so fantastical as all that. Essentially, we have perfected a technique by which we can induce a dreamlike state in a subject. During this period, we can then introduce very specific memories into the brain. You know how some dreams seem very real and stay with you after you wake? It is akin to that, though much more detailed and resilient. Your sleeping brain will think it's a dream, and when you wake... It will be recalled as real past events. Swallowing, I weighed his words. I had trouble believing it was true, but even if it was, I wasn't going to trust someone to mess with my memories. On the other hand, Hannah said that she and Terry both had done it, and I knew he'd never gotten it from me as a gift if he didn't believe it was safe. I had the worried thought that it just seemed strange he'd never mentioned it to me before, but... Possibly that was just so it wouldn't ruin the surprise if he planned on getting me to try it in the future. Either way, I decided I could at least finish hearing them out. So, what kind of things can be implanted? The man sat back in his chair and folded his hands across his knee. Looking distant as he began again. All the things you may expect. Wondrous vacations, exciting adventures, illicit romances... He shot me a sly look at the last. Of course, it cannot be anything too fantastical, or the brain won't accept it as reality. So no trips to Mars or having superpowers, I'm afraid. And those things are beyond the scope of what you're being offered in any case. We have three tiers of service. Tier one is the least expensive and is where everyone has to start. This is what we call the knowledge tree. What's that mean? Have you ever wanted to know how to build a car engine, or fly a plane, or play the piano? Tier 1 will give you a professional level of knowledge in one subject area. Something that would normally take five years of dedication will be learned in less than one day. My eyes widened. Are you serious? Haler smiled again. Very much so. You still have to train the muscle memory, of course, but that usually takes a few hours of practice at most. It will be like you're an expert returning to a well-known skill after being away of it for about a year or two. And you'll keep it forever. I was starting to be excited in spite of myself, but I thought back on something else he had said. Why'd you say everyone starts at Tier 1? Well, for two reasons. First, the human brain is very adaptive, but we find the greatest success by starting with something relatively small. As strange as it sounds, it is much easier to teach you how to be a tennis pro or an excellent computer programmer than it is to give you a week-long adventure as a deep cover secret agent. The brain accepts the core information easily, but the experiences themselves are trickier. With Tier 1, we're merely giving you what we call filler experiences you on a tennis court or sitting at a computer in a bare room. Just enough memory of learning that skill that your brain accepts it as reality and does not experience any mnemonic dissonance. After your brain has experienced the technique, it becomes more accepting of more elaborate realities and the other tiers become an option. Okay, uh, I guess that makes sense. What's the second reason? Aylor chuckled again. Why, the money-back guarantee, of course. If you're not completely satisfied with your Tier 1 experience, you will get a full refund of the money your friend paid for it. I gave a nervous laugh. <laughs> What's to stop me from liking the treatment and still asking for a refund? I either gave a slight smirk. Well, that's your prerogative, of course. Normally, our clientele is not concerned with how much it costs getting the money back glanced around my apartment, but I understand not everyone is in the same financial position. Rest assured, if you complete Tier 1 and want a refund, you will get it, no questions asked. My head was buzzing as I asked the next question. How much did Terry spend on this? The man struggled slightly. I believe it was $600,000. The following week, I was in a coldly beautiful clinic in rural Iceland. The flight and accommodations were part of the service, I learned, and I was ushered to my room. I found myself amazed by my surroundings. Everything was so white and clean, but more than that, I almost felt like I was on a spaceship from the time I stepped into a lobby of what could have just and easily been an exclusive, ultra-modern hotel. Soft light emanated from the walls and ceiling, and nearly everything seemed to be as seamlessly automated and voice-controlled. Ambient music played quietly in most of the halls, and underneath that, the most inaudible hum of something that vibrated the air like a distant heartbeat. Over the next day, I was treated to wonderful food and strange but comfortable surroundings. The next afternoon, it was time for the treatment. I was taken into a room with a large padded chair, and while I saw several machines and banks of electronics along the wall, I had no real idea how any of it worked. I'd been assured that the treatment required no surgery or physical implant, but simply amounted to the right combination of chemicals and the manipulation of electromagnetic fields. I was strapped down, but they said that was only to keep me still in case of mild muscle contractions. Several people clad in whites made preparations around the room when I was given multiple injections, and within minutes... I felt myself beginning to fade out. I felt a last moment of dim panic and found myself focusing on the dark spot on the otherwise pristine far wall, willing myself to stay awake and see what they were actually going to do to me. I knew the thought made no sense and within moments I was waking up back in my room. I looked at the clock and saw that actually six hours had passed. It was then that I saw the guitar propped against the far wall. I'd picked learning guitar for both sentimental and practical reasons. Terry and I had always talked about learning to play, but I could never afford lessons, and I always suspected he avoided learning because he understood that, and knew I wouldn't accept help from him either. I also thought guitar was a good idea because it was a relatively small addition to my brain, if it worked, and easier to argue for the refund if I didn't assuming they were being honest. I sat up and stood slowly, gingerly testing my feet as I stepped toward the instrument. I felt fine. More than fine. I felt better. And I knew as soon as I touched that guitar, I'd be able to play it. Within two hours, my hands had come close to matching what my head already knew. I'd played songs of all kind, as easy as breathing, tears of wonder in my eyes as I strummed the guitar. I could never have imagined being given such a gift, and when I finally slept, it was the best sleep of my life. I woke with a start to find Mr. Aller sitting at the foot of my bed. When he turned to look at me, his face was unreadable. Good morning. What? What are you doing here? He glanced down at his hands. Well, there's a small accounting manner we must attend to. Accounting? He puffed out a discontented breath. <sighs> yes. When your friend procured this gift for you, we placed a customary hold on his bank account in the amount of $600,000. The sum was not withdrawn at the time, as we do not withdraw payment until the service is rendered. Clearing his throat, he went on. Yet, we went to withdraw a payment this morning. We learned that the account had been closed. We contacted the bank as courtesy, and we were informed that the account was set up as a limited trust that was liquidated upon Terence's death. I felt my mouth go dry as cotton. What does that mean? Haller's eyes were hard when he turned back to me. It means you owe us the money, of course. I let out a burst of nervous laughter. (laughs) I I can't pay that. I I can't afford a new car, much less this. I gestured toward the guitar laying next to me in the bed before looking back at him. You have to know that. The man's lips twisted slightly. Nonetheless, we must be made whole. We aren't unreasonable. You can either pay some owed in full, or the alternative, bring us two new clients of equal or greater value. One or the other. Within one week. I felt myself growing angry. Listen, I didn't ask for this, and your agreement isn't with me. I'll talk to Terry's family, but i make no promises, and honestly, it's your problem more than mine. Mr. Ehlers let out a dry laugh. Hmm... You think so, boy? Do you think we can only give you pleasant memories? Standing up, I began backing away in fear and frustration. You're insane. He stood and met my gaze steadily. Do you want memories of a childhood where you were molested? Or perhaps the guilt of drowning a baby's sister that never existed? He gave me a contemptuous last look as he walked past me towards the door. One... Week, And then we come for you. She'd moved out of Terry's house after the funeral, the property apparently being absorbed into the family's wealth as much as his bank account had. Her new apartment back in her northwestern hometown was a big step down from the beachside mansion she'd spent in the last three years in. In fact, it reminded me a lot of my own place. Look, I'm sorry. Okay, I fucked up. I fucked myself, and now I've fucked you too. I guess. The girl sitting in front of me was a ghost of the Hannah I knew. She was cooperative enough. I'd half expected her to hang up on me when I finally got her on the phone, but she told me where she was living and agreed to meet. I was up there the next morning, and I had worked to hide my shock when I saw her. She looked like she'd lost weight and hadn't bathed in days her hair hanging in greasy strings around her pale face. But worse, she looked like something inside her was missing, like some spark, maybe the will to live, was either guttering or already gone. Sitting up Hannah's bare and dingy living room filled with boxes she hadn't bothered unpacking, I felt sympathy for her, but it was being overridden by my fear and anger. Just tell me what happened, who these people are, and how I can stop this. She let out a dull laugh, her eyes flickering to meet mine before falling away again. You can't stop this. Neither of us can. Trying to keep my voice even, I tried again. Just tell me. When I first met Terry, it was like a dream come true, you know? He was like a prince in some kind of fairy tale, coming to take me away from my boring life and make small town Hannah his princess. I know that might sound like I was in it for the money, but that isn't true. I didn't care if he was rich or poor, though I admit in the beginning I liked the perks of being the girlfriend of someone that could go anywhere and do anything. Still, I came to hate the money over time. It tied him to his family, for one thing. At first, I liked them. They were always nice, treated me well, didn't act stuck up or anything. But once I stuck around for a while, once they saw I might become part of the family permanently, things started to change. It was little things. They would talk about some expensive trip they took to some fancy place and then ask if I had ever been, knowing there was no way that I had. They would talk about some obscure thing they learned in their Ivy League schools and then apologize to me told me they were sorry and they were happy to talk about something I was more familiar with, as though they were doing me a favor by lowering the conversation to my level. Passive-aggressive shit like that. Stuff that was small enough that I'd look insecure and petty, bringing it up to Terry. And at first, I just laughed it off and tried to ignore it, but as I grew to love him more, I found myself caring more, even though I knew it was stupid and I shouldn't care what they thought. I started becoming insecure, More awkward when we went out to a fancy place or on a nice trip, I started thinking I wasn't good enough for him. When he proposed to me, I panicked. I was in a bad place at the time with all this stuff, and I almost turned him down. Told him that he could do better, but I loved him too much for that, to let his shit family psych me out or let my own weaknesses keep me from the man I loved. So I said yes. Less than a month later, a friend from high school contacted me, told me about a clinic they had went to in Iceland. Bear in mind, when I knew this dude, he was huffing glue behind the bleachers and getting Cindy Polino pregnant, but apparently he had gone to become some semi-successful real estate agent in Seattle. I didn't know why he was contacting me or telling me about this place, but he was a good enough salesman to keep me on the line. It was a place where they could give you new memories and knowledge, totally safe and really amazing stuff like something from a sci-fi movie. He said they had very flexible financing and had actually done his treatment in exchange for an old speedboat he'd had for years. That now, instead of sucking at the financial side of business, he was able to handle complex accounting like he had been doing it for years. Long story short, I wound up doing it. Terry had given me a car for my birthday the year before, and I gave that to them, made up a story about him going to visit my sister and the car getting stolen while I was actually away at the clinic. In exchange, they gave me what they called their Higher Education and Culture Package. Two weeks later, we were at a family dinner, and I was the one doing apologizing and telling them that we could talk about something they knew more about. It was wonderful. A few days later, the man I'd met from the clinic, Mr. Ehler, contacted me. He said there had been problems with the trade, that the service I received was actually far more expensive than the worth of the car. Instead of being worth $75,000, it was actually worth $3.2 I didn't have any way of paying it. Even Terry would have had trouble paying it without the tons of questions from his family as almost everything he had was controlled by the trust. And I wasn't going to involve him or them in any way. I wasn't going to prove his family right by asking for money like that. So I argued with Ayler, told him that it wasn't my mistake. A deal was a deal and he could fuck right off. He told me I had a month to reconsider and either pay the money or recruit someone else to take the treatment. I said sure thing and shut the door in his face, tried to forget about it, figuring he was full of shit. A month later, they came for me. I don't remember much about it, but when it was done, I was sitting outside our house on the driveway. It was early morning and it was cold, but I barely noticed. I was too busy thinking about the two years I had spent trapped in a basement being tortured when I was a teenager. The funny thing is, there's some parts of you that knows it's not true, right? Especially the first bad memory. They altered it a little, make everything seem a little off in that first bad one. Everything was red, like a camera with a red filter on it or something. They do it on purpose. Call it a tent marker. A way of letting you know that it's something they added. And a way of making you understand that it doesn't matter if you know they put it in you. It still hurts. I walked into the house expecting Terry to be terrified with worry. The love of his life had been abducted for several days, right? Except, no. He thought I'd gone on a sudden trip to visit my sister again, because apparently I had texted and called him about it. I don't remember any of that, of course, but I was starting to get how little that really meant. Now I understand more. They don't care about the money. That's just a trick to make you think you're dealing with a business, dealing with something normal that you can fight against or bargain with. I think they do want new customers, though. I don't really know why. What I do know is what happened after I gave them you. I hated to do it. I've always liked you, and Terry loved you like a brother. Hell, way more than he loved his actual family, but after he died so suddenly, I was broken and desperate. They left me alone for a while after that first bad memory, but then Mr. Aller came and contacted me again, telling me that my obligations were still not fulfilled. So I lied to you, tricked you into going, probably damned myself by betraying you and the love Terry had for you. Next weekend, I woke up screaming, remembering how I was driving the car that killed my mother and father last year. I checked, and my father really did die last year. The records say he died of a heart attack while having surgery. There's no indication that he was in a car wreck. There's also no indication that my mother died at all. See, I haven't seen my mother since I was six. She was a junkie, and when she started using around me, my dad threw her out. She could be dead, for all I know, but I don't have any other memories of her since then, except for that night that I killed them both in the wreck. That's the trick of it, you see. I know logically that the memory has to be false, has to be implanted, but my brain and my heart don't really believe that. The memory's too strong and it feels too real, especially without any of the tent markers the first one had. And I feel like what I know has to be true and what I know is true are two different things. And that difference is tearing me apart. The only thing I can suggest is running They'll probably still find you They somehow found me Even though I was hiding out after setting you up But it's worth a shot, I guess I could tell from her weary expression That she knew it wasn't worth much at all Why didn't you go to the police or something? Her mouth split into a terrible grin As she stared at me in disbelief You don't think I tried? Why do you think you haven't called someone? Try it. They put all kinds of stuff inside you. You can't tell on them. She lowered her gaze again. You can't even kill yourself. My eyes widened. Hannah, you didn't. Shaking her head, she stood up. I thought she was done talking, but she paused before walking away. Before they're done with you, You'll try to. I'd like to tell you I found some way to get the money or to fight them. Some way to trick or outsmart them. But in the end, I ran. For all her past deceit, I knew Hannah had been telling me the truth. Or at least the truth as she knew it to be. And I had no way of winning against something like that. And so my only hope was that if I disappeared, they would leave me alone. Ten days after I learned to play the guitar, I learned that I was the one that killed Terry. The memory was strange and slightly surreal, with everything tinted a deep blue, but despite this, it was very detailed and real to me. I remember calling him up, asking if it was okay if I visited him in a couple of days, but to keep it just between us that I was coming that I met him out in the parking lot of our old school, now closed and scheduled to be renovated into some kind of group home in the following spring. I remember his confused laughter when I pulled a knife on him and how he started to squeal and bag as I began to hurt him. I remembered it all and I knew it was true, even though every bit of it was a lie because Terry had died of a sudden stroke while he was playing golf, and I was over a thousand miles away. By the time Hannah had called me, he had already been declared dead in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Blue tint marker aside, there was no way I could have killed them. But despite that objective reality... I could feel the weight of murdering my best friend, crushing me. No one even bothered contacting me again, either to shake me down for money they didn't really want, or for new recruits that I had already decided I would never give them. I wouldn't make the mistake Hannah had made, dragging down someone else as I drowned in the sea of horror they were slowly pouring into my head. Maybe they somehow knew I wouldn't help them. Either way, two weeks later, I woke up in a strange motel room in Nebraska. Now, I knew I had always loved torturing animals since I was a young boy. How excited it made me, even now. I wanted to deny it, say it went against everything I thought about myself and other memories of my life, but I was beginning to appreciate how little those internal protests actually meant in the face of this thing poisoning my mind. Like Hannah, I tried repeatedly to tell someone, anyone, about what was happening to me, but somehow I could never get the words out. Like she predicted, I tried to hang myself in the bathroom of that same Nebraska motel room with a drying cord from the dirty bathroom, but my hands wouldn't cinch it around my neck. The following day, my feet similarly betrayed me, refusing to step out of the front of a passing concrete truck. Three days ago, I was taken again, though this time I actually remembered some of it. I remembered waking up the people surrounding me in that low drone of the plane's engines while we were in flight. I remember being taken back to the clinic, not through the beautiful lobby, but through some dark service entrance that sent back the lonely echoes of our footfalls as I was pulled back inside. Yet even then, I was surprised at how little I struggled, at how few noises I made. I could see and understand everything well enough by that point, having woken from whatever stupor they had induced. But still, I found it hard to do much other than look around blandly while my insides felt like they were dissolving in an acid bath of terror. Then I was in the procedure room again, stripped naked and strapped to the chair and staring at that one blemish on the white wall. There were several people around me, but there was no show of giving me injections this time or scientific fanfare of any kind. I wanted to ask questions, but I found I couldn't speak, and no one would speak to me. So I was left staring at that dirty spot on the far wall. And at first I thought it was my imagination that it was growing larger, but no, it was, or at least... The white was disappearing as the wall slid away to reveal a black tunnel. Suddenly, Mr. Aylor was beside the chair. He glanced down at me, his smile cold. Welcome to Tier 3. Someone behind me began to roll the chair forward into the yawning darkness. I felt hot air that smelled of sulfur buffeting my face as we cleared the threshold of the room, leaving behind the clean precision of the modern clinic for the rough, Hewn dark walls of volcanic rock that surrounded us on every side. There were five of us, including Aylor and the three attendees that had flashlights clipped to their shirts now. The jostled illumination dancing back and forth across the slowly deepening tunnel as we progressed further out and down. I wish I could say I don't remember any of this, but I do, at least for now. I also remember when the tunnel finally flattened out and widened into a stone chamber that seemed impossibly large. The walls to either side were only ten or twelve feet away, but they seemed to run ahead of us and upward forever. Far higher than should be possible considering how deep I thought we must be. And the walls themselves were pocked with row after row of holes that appeared to be tunnels half the size of the one we had just left. I had the thought of a beehive, though, I knew it was a bad comparison. I was more afraid at that moment than I had ever been, more than I ever thought I could be. I found myself hoping I would just die from being afraid, but it was just me lying to myself again. I wasn't going to die, and I could still be much more afraid they turned and began to push me toward one of the smaller tunnels, and as we grew closer I saw something moving in that deeper dark. I was so transfixed by trying to see what we were approaching that I almost didn't hear euler talking to me again. Back in 1783, there were a series of volcanic eruptions near here. It lasted for eight months, if you can believe it. Killed many people, you know. Famine and fluoride poisoning mainly, but those... Some died of other causes. My eyes were still fixed on this indistinct shape coming closer, but I heard him chuckle. Many people called it Eldar. A few of us know it meant much more than just fire and destruction. The chair had stopped moving now, and I was able to make out the dim outlines of the thing before us. Its sides appeared to be deep, slick red that resembled a brightly colored slug. I had no way of knowing how large it was because its undulating length went back into the darkness without end. My eyes kept wanting to avoid looking at what I assumed was its head, a mass of hard, deeper crimson flesh and squid-like arms that were ran through with jagged calcifications of black stone that endlessly dripped a thick white fluid from the wounds that the rocks had produced. As the first drop of that hit my bare skin... I felt my leg begin to go numb. This place, these wonderful beings, no one knows for sure if they were always here and just awoke during the eruption or if their arrival actually caused Skaftar. What we do know is that soon after the eruptions died down, the first of us discovered newly opened caves that led to this blessed place. Ever since, we've helped them with their work and reaped the bounty of their wisdom. I felt the first tendrils of the thing climbing my body and touching my legs and groin almost gingerly as it made its way toward my head. I felt like I was going insane, but then suddenly spoke, my voice calm as I uttered words not my own. What is their work? My head turned toward Aller, who was looking down at me with a smirk. Glad you asked. Why, it's the study of the human soul. I felt the tentacles of the creature coiling around my neck and head, holding me fast toward Aylor as he went on. They want to see what it takes to shape a soul, to refine it or break it. Are they immutable? Or can they be changed through experiences, ideas, different beliefs? Aylor looked over at the thing above me with some mixture of love and admiration. In past centuries, these studies have taken many forms, but lately, there's been a focus on the effect of convincing someone of a false past. Can you make a person better or worse by giving them memories that they had a better or worse life than they actually had? Can you make a person more virtuous or depraved simply by making them believe they had been so in the past? He looked back to me. These are questions we're working to answer, but there are many, many of these beings, you see, and we're always running out of participants in our experiment. He frowned slightly. And before you think us unfair, we really do try to be even-handed. We have people that we make much happier by erasing bad memories and creating better replacements. It's just, well, there has to be a group that is... Pushed toward darker extremes, and unfortunately for you, that's the lot you've drawn. I wanted to say more, but then the world went white, then red, then dark. When I woke up, I was back in my apartment. I remember several more things now. Terrible things I can't even bring myself to write. Not that I think it will matter much longer anyway. You see, I've been looking back over what I've written, and I already don't remember most of it. I started writing this to create a record, but how much of it will help me if I can't recall the truth and if no one else will believe me? I'm surprised I could even write at all, but perhaps they know the pointlessness of it, and so they don't mind. I don't know. What I do know is that I feel like I'm being dissolved, boiled away in a stew of false memories I can't discern, and strange impulses I don't understand. But what will be left when the boiling is done? What will be the shape of my soul when they're done refining it? I only hope that if they find the monster they're looking for, there's not enough of me left to see it.